everyone again and welcome to the Burley Fisher podcast entering our second episode of our series celebrating BF Day 2-3. Uh, we began last week or last episode with the heavy hitters of the poetry showcase, the Saturday Night Poetry Showcasing and following up that left hook with a right hook of Isabel Weidner and M. John Harrison who are our headliners. Uh, for the weekend. Um, Sam, do you want to tell us a little bit about Isabella and Mike? Uh, I'm not going to tell you too much because then I will be telling you again in the recording. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, will, I will just say that it's a huge honour to interview both of these writers, um, uh, Isabel, uh, who I published, and Mike, who's been a big hero to me and I know to you as well, Dan. Uh, and indeed, an indeed. Articulate Thinker is, is his, his new book. Uh, for anyone who writes or enjoys reading or <laughs> um these are those two things his new memoir is really worth reading um so yeah I, it's a really wide range of conversation though it's just a real joy to be able to speak to them both they're such um interesting and uh yeah sideways thinkers about writing so yeah i mean i was i would feel like i was taking my life in my hands to describe isabel and mike as a right hook because they're definitely swinging from the left <laughs> They are are writers of the left hand of darkness, uh, of always thinking otherwise and stepping us into the weird on the genuine thrill in this room of not knowing at any given point which way this conversation was going to go, where it was going to take us, what worlds it was going to lift us into. And Sam just did an incredible job to keep it running, to keep it expansive. Uh, and you can just, you'll hear the audience's silence as they're absorbing it, which is an incredible skill and also an incredible facet of the beautiful space we were in, the main hall of St. Peter's Church de Beauvoir Town. And uh, I'm going to do a little thanks because you can't say thank you enough uh, to people doing a shoestring Books Festival depends a lot on the kindness of friends and colleagues uh, and, and strangers sometimes, but thanks to Kathy and Father Simon at St. Peter's uh, and all of the volunteers uh, as well who made it possible for us to be in the space. Thanks to Arts Council England who helped us pay uh, all our speakers and ensure that um, writers like Mike could travel to London to join us. Um, and thanks to Serpent's Tale, who published uh, Mike's anti-memoir and to Peninsula, Isabel's publisher, for making it possible for us to host the writers. And thank you to Kat and Asheen and Emma and Tash as well for being there on the day um, and keeping everything running and keeping everything running every day at Bellifshire Books. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Would not certainly not have been possible without them. Slight caveat, Emma wasn't actually there. She was on holiday, you remember. <laughs> Emma co-created the zine fair with Asheen. She was there in spirit. She was there in spirit. Exactly. Uh, Emma was the, the zine fairy. Uh... The zine fairy. <laughs> thanks, thanks for being there to take the register, Dan. Always in the port roll. Uh, well, on that note, I think uh, we'll pass over to Isabel, Mike and... Mr. Fisher.
don't know. It works. It's a good start. Good evening. Um, it's so nice to see so many familiar faces here, but for those of you that don't know me, my name's Sam and I'm from Berkshire Books. And it's going to be my pleasure and privilege to share this event. I'm excited to welcome you all to BF Day 23, the second edition of um, our Bailey Fisher Festival, uh, which was made possible thanks to an Arts Council grant, as well as all of our indie publisher partners, Cypher, Fitzcarraldo, Grant of Poetry, Peninsula, Prototype, September, and, and Serpent's Tale. Uh, we're thrilled to be back in this amazing venue, um, and we want to thank Father Simon, Kathy, Debbie, and all the team here for, uh, for Letting us come back <laughs> and being so accommodating. I want to add my own special thanks uh, to everyone from the bookshop Kat, Sheen, Emma, Tash, Dan, uh, who have worked so hard to make this day possible, as well as Chloe, who's been volunteering. But I want to give my special thanks to So Mayor, who has both been the impetus uh, behind the endeavour and the galaxy brain that's <laughs> made it come off. So, anyone who's been lucky enough to work with So will know the lengths that they go to in order to nurture and support. The community that surrounds them so we're all lucky to have them and grateful for everything that they do. After the event uh, I have to mention there will be a chance to get your book signed uh, down in the crypt and you can grab a drink ahead of the Grants Poetry Showcase which will be the uh, closing event here tonight and also be in the church. Um, and I want to thank Kate and all of the volunteers for selling tea and coffee all day for anyone who's been uh, in for the long haul, uh, raising money for the Devoe White Heat Exchange, supporting local low-income residents. Now onto the main event. I'd like to welcome the writers M. John Harrison and Isabel Weidner to the stage for our event, Weird Works. M. John Harrison is the author of, among others, The Viriconium Stories, The Century Device, Climbers, The Course of the Heart, The Sunken Land Begins to Rise Again, Signs of Life, Light, and Nova Swing. He's won the Boardman Tasker Prize for Climbers, the James Tiptree Junior Award for Light, the Arthur C. Clarke Award for Nova Swing, and the Goldsmith Prize for The Sunken Land Begins to Rise Again. <clears throat> His most recent book, Wish I Was Here, is an anti-memoir that is both a story of a writer's life as well as an articulation of a radical poetics that's developed over five decades of fiction writing. Um, and Mike's a restlessly innovative writer, so as you might imagine, it's a memoir that looks forward as much as it does, as much as it looks back. Isabel Weidner is a writer based in London. They are the author of <laughs> the novels Gordy Bauble, We Are Made of Diamond Stuff, and Sterling Carrot Gold, for which they won the Goldsmiths Prize and were shortlisted for the Orwell Prize for Political Fiction. The latest work, titled Corey Fader Social Mobility, was published in July. It follows in the radiant, revolutionary, and gleefully disruptive vein of their previous novels begins with a writer winning a big literary prize, um, something that might come up in our conversation tonight. So please give a very big round of applause for two writers who I couldn't be more privileged to share a stage with, M. John Harrison and Isabel Weidner. Um, so just to give you a sense of the format of the event, we're going to start with two short readings from our writers' latest works, um, and then we're going to have a conversation for 40 minutes or so, and there'll be a chance at the end for you to put your questions to the authors as well, so save them up at the end. And um, questions and comments, but we prefer questions, I think. <laughs> um, uh, and Isabel's going to take us away first, so no. Isabel. 
So thank okay. you so much, Sam, for the introduction. Thank you guys for coming. I really appreciate it. And never take it for granted. So really great to see you earlier. Um, should I say anything about the book, or should I just Please, read yeah. it? Um, to sum it up in a couple of sentences, the idea behind Corifar and the social mobility was um, to investigate sort of conservative ideas around social mobility, which especially in fiction are often um, presented as trying for tragedy narratives or they're um, connected to fantasies around merit. So the point, the, the initial idea was to challenge these um, to complicate some of the assumptions behind social mobility and I used um, the writer Corey Farr um, winning a big literary prize. Not entirely unlike myself winning the Goldsmiths Prize in 2021 to make the case that it's not quite so straightforward. And um, yes, so Corey Farr sort of propelled into these contexts of supposed privilege, but things keep going wrong. Con they constantly have to um, content with their difference and um, with their past catching up with them in the shape of this cute but freaky Bambi creature, which I can say a bit more about later on. But I just read from the beginning, so I read three minutes from the beginning, then I hand over to Mike, obviously. Um, so this is um, the first chapter, which is called Cory Father's Social Mobility, See How That Goes. I found myself at Koshma Circus, beneath the old bandstand's prominent pyramid-shaped roof, contemplating a UFO. When I say UFO, I don't mean spaceship. I mean it in the literal sense, unidentified flying object. Circa half a meter tall, it hovered directly in my eyeline. It radiated neon beige, what a concept. I just stood there, one, head on my hand, one hand on my head, the other on my hip, considering the likelihood. We're still thinking on it, still processing, when I noticed someone or something moving behind me. I turned around and saw it was Bambi. When I say Bambi, I mean Bambi, but not as we know him. On top of his famously unsteady legs, he had four spider's legs. Grand total was eight. Besides, he had multiple sets of eyes, like that Sarah filtered kitty on Instagram, or most common spiders, pavok in one euro language. The phone looked at me, batting four sets of lashes, giving this arming smile. Off he went, hustling around the bandstand, rattling the local blue tits to the core. My modus operandi was dissociation, and tonight was no exception. This was a deer-in-the-headlights situation, and by deer I mean myself, not Bami Pavok. I was at a loss what to do, especially about the task I'd been sent to carry out. Did I say I'd won a mad prize, likely by mistake? The award for the fictionalization of social evils goes to chair of the judging committee saying my name, Corey Farr. That had been at the online winner announcement I'd attended with Drew Shamsky, my soulmate and partner, earlier tonight at home in our flat in Socialny Estate. Drew going shut the front door, what's going on? I'd missed much of what had followed the announcement. I just sat there in my white fruit of the loom type charity shop t-shirt and watched myself on the live stream. I'd worn grey cotton joggers, t-shirt tucked in, a de detail wasted on camera of course. Black brogues, I'd got them involved. I was fairly certain though that in the after session to the public announcement, the prize coordinator had asked me to go Koshma Circus and collect the physical representation of the cultural capital I'd just acquired. Go get your trophy, she'd said, 
do it quickly before the judges change their minds. I hadn't been sure if she was joking or not. So I told Drew I'd be going. What now, they'd asked, would be an hour's walk at the minimum, even if I cut through the little woods just south of a state. No matter, I'd left straight away. Koshma Circus was an ornamental mound at the center of a social housing estate in the east of the international capital. Surrounded by 13 story high concrete apartment blocks, it felt fenced in. Blackthorn, hawthorn, and elder bushes grew in concentric flower beds between street level and the first tier, and again between the first and second tiers. Historical bandstand on top. Problem was, I couldn't see any trophy, just the UFO and Bambi Pavok. Pampas grass in mid-distance. Was I in the wrong place, I wondered? Had I misunderstood the instructions? Detail had, I want to say, not been forthcoming. More like withheld. It'll be self-explanatory, the prize coordinator had said. The assumption had been that the winner would know how to collect. That prize culture etiquette, its unwritten rules and regulations, would be second nature to them. But I did not know how to collect, and they were not second nature to me. I'd not won an award before, and neither had anybody I knew. I'll leave it at that. Uh, this, is, um, this is about throwing yourself away. Uh, every other night between midnight and three, I dream that I take my hard drives to the river. I turn right out of the house and then immediately right again, past Magnolia, past Mysteria. Barnes is empty. Maybe there are a few high clouds, a bit of moon, the texture of fish skin. Maybe it's snowing on a raw wind. Maybe the wind is blowing up from the river along Cleveland Gardens, maybe down towards the river. Maybe it's an August night, soft, warm air, more like Valencia than London. Anyway, walking is easy. It's like a kind of floating, at least until the riverfront, the station, and the dark brick heel of the bridge. There's always a little urgency there. The situation's not unpleasant, but it's no longer a trance. Every other night, in the center of Barnes Bridge, facing downstream along the Thames to Corley Reach and Chiswick Ayer, I take the hard drives out of my pocket, line them up carefully on the parapet, and imagine that I will drown them. Sometimes I imagine pushing them over with one finger. Sometimes I imagine throwing them out over the water, suddenly, and with the most violent body language. Whatever. It's essential that they're still intact when they go. It's essential that I imagine them entering the river undamaged, that they're carried along by a falling tide, that they sink slowly, that they become, over many years, eroded, corroded, buried in the deepest parts of the channel. It's essential they never be found. It's essential, too, that the data remains 
for as long as it can, but also that it can be understood from this moment as dissolving or as being etched away, liberated from the prison of its encoding. Whatever it was, before it passed from my life into words, becoming bound, I imagine it now etched and dissolved away forever, leaving behind, in 10 years or 200, only some unreadable, cakey, wafery, fossil combination of rust and mud. As soon as I've imagined all that, I'm released to put the drives carefully back in my pocket and make my way home. It's four minutes on a nice night, a dream or fantasy of throwing yourself away. Q. Do you identify as a science fiction writer? A. No. I identify nightly, or at least every second night or so, as someone who would like to be rusting under the Thames. <laughs> Thank you both for those readings. Um, you both have such a way of bringing it to life. Um, I love that phrase. The idea that writing can be liberated from the prison of its encodement. <laughs> yeah, I think you both find ways of doing that. Um, so, and mentioning genre, it might seem a strange place to start with two such radical writers, but <clears throat> I wanted to ask you both about autofiction. It's something you play with, Isabel, in your latest novel, and it's something you've experimented with in the past, Mike, especially in climbers. Um, and I, I wanted to ask what do you think the genre offers to writers and what radical potential it still has? Um, and then, Mike, in your new book, what made, you, what made you decide to step away from fiction, auto or otherwise, and to write a memoir that's also not a memoir? <laughs> that's a lot of questions in one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Buckling lies. <laughs> um, you want to start? Okay. <laughs> I, I haven't really got... I wouldn't really, um, I wouldn't really describe my work as auto-fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, at all. I, I don't feel that's a tradition that I write in or that's a tradition I particularly align myself with. I think it has its place, but I, w I would not say that that's among my um, influences. I do appear to be right. I do, interestingly for me, <laughs> maybe not me, but appear to be writing um, from the present mm -hmm. to some large extent, and I am always in the present that I write from. So. It will also always um, be a situated perspective of of what whatever is going on in my um, environment, I guess. Yeah. But um, I wouldn't really say that my work yeah. is, is autofiction. I guess this, this one is sort of an anti-memoir, isn't it? So yeah, so it's anti-autofiction. It's anti-autofiction. <laughs> <laughs> I hope. I don't know that I do it either, or, or the climbers was it. We, uh, we had a different name for it back then. And I've been trying to remember what it is, and I can't. Um, I think we might have called it fraction. Anyway, um, what I do is I always write who I am when I'm writing. So that's very similar to you, in a sense, you know, being in the present and writing sort of who you are. I don't see how you can avoid that, one way or another. 
Uh, back, back at, in my beginnings, uh, I was always warned by the, the guys who taught me to write sci-fi. You should never, ever bring yourself into the text in any way whatsoever. So obviously, I immediately got in the end to do it. Uh, and, and, and spent many years after that trying to learn how you would um, write simultaneously from inside yourself and yet about made-up characters. Um, the, 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 the memoir is obviously, you know, there's a very conscious engagement there yeah. in the idea of writing that kind of thing. Um, the idea being to leave the reader at the end of it as puzzled as I was, uh -huh. really about what you do when you write a book like that. Yeah. It's just what is a memoir, mm -hmm. especially if you've got no memory. Yeah. Well, that's that was that was uh, it's a great segue into kind of the next thing I wanted to ask about, and it's interesting. You're talking about writing out of a situated present. Um, and I guess in that sense, or. Um, most fiction is auto-fiction, yeah. <laughs> yeah, depending on how capacious you want to be with your yeah. definition of what it is. But, I think, um, um, I think I, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, I think what we both do is I think um, we both, of course all fiction is auto-fiction, but I think, for, for example, uh, let's say I, I don't want to speak for Mike, but we put a lot, a lot of structure in place mm -hmm. that distances. Mm -hmm. The fiction that ends up emerging on the paper from something that is sort of could from sort of this fantasy that you could ever express your true and true and real self. That I think we both recognize that that is a sort of a fantasy, and we um, we disrupt that quite deliberately. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of sort of distancing stuff going on in yeah. my fiction, yeah. and I, I, arguably in yours as well. There is a lot of there's never sort of the the, the, the self doesn't sort of pour on the, onto the page. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a there is a lot of structural work around it that shifts this into a completely um, different place, arguably, that shifts the fiction into, and that sort of builds the fiction as something that is entirely other, ultimately. Yeah. I, th I think I would say of my side. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, but I think what, what I was, what I, the next question I was going to work onto was you were talking about not being able to remember anything, uh, and and you're kind of t talking about disrupting this idea of a, a possibility of expressing a continuous self, and I feel like in your distrust of memory in the memoir, Mike, there's something of that. I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about your distrust of memory and, and how you put the memoir together. Um, yeah. I not so much of distrust as, as the fact that what memories I do have come as images. They, mm. they come as imagery um, rather than as scenes yeah. with characters and causalities. Um, and I, I take that to be actually a picture of reality. Um, that, that, that we, we don't have coherent lives and we can't necessarily demonstrate to ourselves a coherent personality, yeah. and that that actually, for me, uh, at the point of trying to decide how to write this, was an advantage. Mm -hmm. you know, the admission that you you can't make a continuous personality out of your own life, that you that even if you could, you would try to avoid making a story, a narrative, mm -hmm. all of those awful things. <laughs> 
frankly, I would just like <laughs> run away from it if I ever noticed them in my own work. <laughs> um, all of all of that led to at least you asking questions about how you will structure it before you start. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. What I decided to do was to give the reader some idea of the memoir by chopping and tailing the book with memoir adjacent material. You know, I was a little boy, I looked at things, mm -hmm. they were green, you know, and then later on I was 70 odd years old and really disappointed. <laughs> you know, um, and then in the middle, what was my life? Well, you know, my life was like being a writer. Yeah. I was being a writer, so here's what it's like to be a writer. Yeah. I think the interesting thing is that if you're a writer, I don't know if others other writers in the audience would agree, you actually start becoming less interested in yourself, you start becoming interested in the book. So mm -hmm. I actually care less about my, who I am. I start, I'm not even that interested in it. I'm interested in is this, what does this book do that yeah. I'm writing. Yeah, the structure it's probably completely dysfunctional. I don't, I, at this point, you don't really care anymore. If you, I guess if you're a writer, the, the, the work goes into the book. Yeah, doesn't it? It does. Um, and the focus is the book. The book finally writes itself. For me, it's about like I get a third of the way through, and suddenly there's a structure there, mm. and that's it. You know, there's something you can hang the rest of it on, and you get into a dialogue with that, and it develops, and it's fantastic, and it's like the best thing there is mm -hmm. until you get to the end. You know, when you get the come down. <laughs> Um, I, also, I, I kind of wanted to ask uh, about memory in relation to your work as well, Isabel. I feel like it has a really interesting engagement with kind of trauma and time and memory in your new book. And I feel like time is something you, you've always played with. And yeah. that relationship between memory and time and how that, how that structures a narrative. Yeah. I don't know if you wanted to talk about yeah. that. Yes, yeah, so in my last two books, so in Core Rider Social Mobility as well as in Sterling Carrot Gold, the previous book, Dest, and I, work, I did stuff with time travel, which is a terrible idea, generally speaking. No, but but, it's like, but um, what it, it really works in, in um, Core I think I sort of um, nailed it. But the, the thing that, allowed, that it allowed me to do is precisely um, do narrative differently, you know this idea of like a, a linear narrative but then you have flashbacks if you want to sort of explain the, the, the main character's background or whatever and then you go forward again and then you have more flashbacks. That sort of struck me as really tedious and I wasn't particularly interested in that. So in my book there's lots of histories and also personal histories as well as wider socio-cultural histories in terms of as, um, there's, for example, another, um, obviously, as I said earlier, it sort of explores the idea of um, queer working class writers doing well. So I also brought in like some references to an actual historical figure, Joe Orton, the playwright, some of you might be aware of. So I bring in some of these histories and um, through time travel, through like something crazy, it sounds ridiculous now, but through wormholes. So they appear in the present, they really affect the present. The point I'm making is pretty simple, is I'm bringing these histories, whether personal or wider socio-cultural, to, to, um, I'm bringing them to bear on the present. Mm -hmm. And I do, did that in this book through like a crazy little device, like a sci-fi device, like a classic trope, wormholes where they bear 
things travel through time and space. So it's kind of fun, but it does something structurally interesting and arguably meaningful. Mm -hmm. Give you that. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to buy it to find out. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> to find out. That leads me on to another thing I kind of wanted to talk about, which was nostalgia. Because um, I feel like um, I think this links as well slightly to the way that you've structured or been interested in time uh, in your last two books. Um, but I feel like, especially in this one, there's an interest in nostalgia, both in respects, with respect to our lives, but kind of the kind of pop cultural and artifacts we surround ourselves with and the lives they have. And, um, and without spoiling anything, Bambi is kind of central to this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if you wanted <laughs> to talk that's about such that. That's a good point. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm, I'm not a particularly nostalgic person. People, mm. people I'm sure, would agree, people who know me would agree. So, um, yeah, I think it's more like a certain, I mean, obviously it goes without saying that the past histories, precedents, influence and shape the present. So um, I think Bambi, in a way, in this book, um, acts like as a sort of a, a vessel which allowed me to ride a traumatic childhood, because famously Bambi's mother was shot in front of Bambi's eyes. So it captures like a sort of trauma um, that I'm sort of associating with the main character's back history. So kind of Bambi um, works a little bit as the Corifar's past in the book. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I'm using such a kind of like a really well-known figure because it's cute but it's also a misfit Bambi. So it's queered a bit. So it's not like, it's also a bit scary. It's also a little bit um, naughty, constantly unruly. And it constantly get in, gets in the way of whatever Corifa wants to achieve. So that's the function of um, of Bambi in a way. Yeah. So I play. I think I sort of play with this nostalgia that people might have for Bambi and sort mm. of twist it a bit and sort of um, make make Bambi a little bit meaner and a little bit naughtier and a bit more unruly. Mm -hmm. But it carries all of this childhood trauma as well. That was the idea. And um, Mike, we've we've talked a bit before about how. You think nostalgia deserves another chance, and I wondered if you could talk about how you felt about nostalgia in the past and what more positive role it could have. Um, well, how you, what force it has in your work, I guess. About halfway through No the Swing, I realised that I was writing about nostalgia, mm -hmm. not 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 about the future at all, but that essentially. And that, and that that crept up on me, and that therefore I must be getting old, <laughs> or something. So, I mean, if you've ever written futuristic fiction, I mean, literally the, the fiction of futurists, you know that nostalgia is like the worst thing you could ever possibly suffer, and it's the worst thing you can ever um, bring to the fore in a text. Um, I suddenly thought, well, what if it isn't? What if, for instance, that's a kind of almost a sociological or political perspective. Um, what if we looked at individual nostalgia, you know, and, and what if we gave it the benefit of the doubt and said that these are th this is a thing that happens to people they feel these appalling pains, you know, mm -hmm. which are not quite describable to them. 
associated with an object or a memory or whatever. Um, and that's real. Mm -hmm. That's a real thing. So let's try and find a way of writing about that. And it then took me maybe 10 years to, with some help from Olivia Lang, who taught me almost by accident that when you say that you write about alienation, one of the things you're actually saying is you write about loneliness. Mm -hmm. And I think loneliness and nostalgia have become, for me, um, very heavily linked. Right. Um, and so by this book, I was ready to sort of give nostalgia its own space in the text mm -hmm. without allowing it to become sentimentalized always to be interrogated um, and the general kind of sociological nostalgia or cultural nostalgia that we now live in but there's some heavy interrogation of that as well yeah um, so it's all in there and it, it i'm able to say this and, and sort of have feelings about it because i was really quite shocked mm -hmm. you know at, at the age of 25 i would have said nostalgia what's that we live in the future, <laughs> you know, all we care about is a new future. Yeah. Um, and I find that that was a bit of a simplistic attitude. Mm -hmm. I um, just wanted to add one thing, yeah, I, I hear exactly what you're saying. Um, there was a, there's a, have you guys read that uh, Helen McDonald and Sim Blasher's yeah, yeah, book, yeah. Profit? Anyway, yeah. it's, nostalgia is like a big, big trope in a way in the, in the narrative. But it has one sentence in it, and it really resonated with me. There's one sentence in it that, that says something along the lines of um, first generation migrants are the, least, are the most unnostalgic people you've ever met in my life. And I was going to be like, yeah, that's me. Because you're so like, well, that old thing, that's gone. I guess because we haven't quite, we don't share our memories. You know, so if you start talking about, if you guys are always starting to get nostalgic over ch children's programs, that, that, that's me out the door because I've I had other, I, I haven't had them. Well, I, I now have because I've lived in this country for so long. I know all the British children's programs better than probably the Germans ones, but I forgot the German ones because I have no one to share them with anymore. I have no idea what they were even anymore, but I might now feel a slight weird nostalgia for, I don't know, the thing with the, Sapi or whatever this thing that the thing that was like the British one, you know the one, like a, it was like a lit up. Anyway, so, so <laughs> I don't want to know what chef But you start, you start creating false memories in a way. But as mm. lots of first generation, lots of people who have left their country behind when they were young, they have, you know, they are, they have a slight allergy to nostalgia. And I think yeah. I'm mm. one of them. Um, Maria stepping over mentions this in, uh, in, in Memory of Memory, which is a book I had to stop reading at about, I think it's one of the best books I read in its year, and I had to stop reading it because I didn't want it to infect which I was here. So it, it is an astonishing book, but, but she mentions a generation of, of, of immigrants who don't do nostalgia, yeah. don't do that. Mm. But I think it's interesting that there is a new interest in looking at looking at nostalgia, you know, mm -hmm. whatever conclusions you come to. Yeah. yeah. Um, as kind of as a counterpoint to that, I wanted to ask about context and community, because I feel like you both 
in your own way, it's been both, it's very successful in, in building context and community around your work, um, and bringing writers along with you as well, which is kind of a vital part of that. Um, and you're both very engaged with the work of your colleagues, and Isabel, you initially self-published, and you've run reading series, and Mike, you've got a devoted reader who kind of follow you throughout your many genres and iterations, and you've been involved in publishing and things like that, and bringing people along. And I, I just wanted to talk, because the festival is kind of all about this as well, I wanted to ask you about what community means with respect to your readership, um, but also how, how it feeds back into your work as well. Yeah, it's... Um, you first. Should I go for it first? Should I briefly give you... Um, it means... It, it obviously means a lot, yeah. So it, um, I've always kind of like... Um, Right, I give you the re really brief history because, as I said, the past sort of course, you know, was nostalgic. But um, when I when I first first um, decided I was going to be a novelist, which is going back a long time, twenty years, so people sometimes think of me as a new novelist. But but um, it took a while because, um, for me to get published. I would arguably because. Um, I, I was a, a queer, like, you know, working class person writing unusual stuff, so I guess I didn't have like a straightforward access into publishing at all. Mm -hmm. But when I was writing, there was no one around. I was really kind of a mourning the absence of a community, so there wasn't, like, go back to the late night, go back to the early 2000s, 20 years ago, there wasn't like a proper, for example, um, LGBTQI plus, um, grassroots community of writers, nor was, did I have access to any sort of working class novelist that, that I was aware of. So none of my friends were novelists. People were artists, musicians, or academics, or they were just, or, or, they, or they were working, mm -hmm. but there weren't any novelists. And, and so it took for me, it took a long time for me to find, for, to sort of arguably help create like this sort of broad um, network of writers. Um, queer and working class writers that we see now in this country and that's been sort of accelerated through independent publishing really um, making a difference you know in in London and in the UK so I did stuff like um, put on events with a friend of mine initially somewhere then in the ICA called Queers Read This and who, which precisely platformed and um, queer working class writers writers of color who come at writing differently, who were writing formally interesting stuff. Because sort of arguably historically there was a bit of a divorce. There were like, you know, if you, if you, if you write a black novel, it's going to be a straightforward fiction about, your, about being black. If you're a queer writer, you write a coming out novel. There wasn't really this overlap of, um, there wasn't really this sort of um, overlap of writing formally innovative work while also doing interesting stuff with positioning or with, with whoever you are. Mm -hmm. And sort of that was really crucial. And now and I, I think it's obviously I'm not the only person who did it. It was a totally a shared um, a shared project, but now it seems like a really lively community. So it means everything in a mm -hmm. way. I don't think good writing emerges in a in a vacuum. I think good writing emerges in in a in a lively culture and that's mm -hmm. that's all I care for. I think we still need yeah. a much more lively literary culture than we have already, I think people should write even more, um, to use the term weirder works, even more, more different works, even more challenging writing, and that's, I guess, is my project. Mm. 
This is what I come to church for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great to see it. It's great to see it. I had the advantage of, um, I got my start straight into a movement, uh, the, you know, the so-called new way, um, the, the very existence of which was founded on the idea of, of encouraging new work, new writing, experimental writing, the crazier the better. You know, um, so it was a great, fantastic sandbox, um, but also it gave you the sense that at least there was some kind of an audience out there building. Um, some we wouldn't have called it a community then, but certainly that's what that's what it would be today. Um, and I think that not only gives you a sense of. Um, you are actually speaking to an audience, which I think is absolutely vital. It also gives you the sense that they're listening to what you say, that somebody is listening to what you say, and that you are therefore in a dialogue, whether you, whether you, whether you actually partake in the dialogue or not, sometimes seems to me to be immaterial. You just have to feel there is one there, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, I also found that limiting, um, so that after 10 years of the new way, I felt that essentially I was being as limited by the ideas that we had started out with as I might have been if I'd been brought up through typical you know, science fiction publishing. Uh, and, and it was at that point I decided to write climbers. Because I, the, the way I expressed it to myself was I wanted to do something 100%, you know, 180 degrees. Yeah. Something had nothing to do with the imagination, nothing to do with fantasy. Of course, you can't do that. And, it, and it's as much a, a work of, it's a, it comes as much out of an imaginary as, as any kind of fantastic fiction. Mm -hmm. But, um, and, and now I find myself in a kind of third stage where I was ambushed in the, the mid-2000s by an audience I didn't know I had. <laughs> and, and now I'm able to write into that and, and, and to find a community there, yeah. which is an astonishing privilege, <laughs> you know, especially at the age of 70 odd, it really is. Mm. Well, I think that, that relates to another thing that I wanted to ask about. In, in your book, in the central section, is kind of the, the section called Understanding Maps is kind of all about um, these. Uh, well, you have characters who take positions, I suppose, and offer um, the, a, a poetics um, which which the voice kind of rubs up against. And, and one of these recurring characters who is uh, very helpful is called Beatrice, and she says something which is put yourself in situations. Where you can take risks, and I think, um, yeah, how, how do you? Because I feel like I'm not going to ask you is important to your work. It just obviously is. <laughs> but how do you how how do you keep finding ways to put yourself to put your work into situations where you're able to innovate and kind of to take risks? I think it's true of both of them. Personally, I just think you have to. Have, Again, you have to piggyback on the fact that you have a discontinuous personality. Mm. And that basically, while you're spending 10 years writing one thing, 
there was part of you that really would like to have a go at something else, and often oppositionally. Um, if you spent 10 years writing fantasy, suddenly you want to write a realist novel, you know? Uh, and I think you should, uh, you should say to yourself at that point, but I can't write a realist novel, I'm a fantasy novelist. And to do this would be a terrible risk. It will put me out in front of an audience that doesn't know me, uh, writing in a way that I'm not entirely certain I can manage. And, and that is the absolute arena for making useful mistakes. Yeah. And at the end of that period, you know, say a couple of years, thrashing about um, in, in this spotlight um, of, of, you know, it, it, the sound pit is suddenly dangerous. You know, mm. the sound pit is no longer a comforting place to be. You're making experiments, and you're really making experiments now. You're out there, you know, and people are going to be laughing <laughs> if you're not careful. And I, I think that's the only way to do it. The only way to keep lively is to, is to take risks in that sense. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's precisely about what you said. It's about um, being lively, keeping being lively and keeping the picture lively, isn't it? Yeah. And you can only do that if you take whatever constitutes a risk for you at this point. Yeah. If you start, if you continue, you know, evolving, to use like a, a sort of cliche term, as a writer, you do want to. Um, continue challenging yourself, and um, I think I mean, luckily, my, I don't think you can. Luckily, I sort of established myself now as a writer that I don't even know what I could do. That would be like a massive risk for myself. <laughs> I sort of, I mean, it's so unusual, I guess, the work, and I managed. I think the the, the positive, um, the the good thing about me and it having taken so long yeah. for me to now work with a big publisher is that I had all this time to write whatever that, whatever excited me, whatever I thought was likely, whatever um, to me was the most um, unusual and meaningful and, and interesting stuff. So now, in a way, nobody can stop me. Yeah. <laughs> I've already done it and I've already found the people now who, who also want to publish this kind of stuff yeah. and who want to make it different in the publishing landscape, <laughs> who are sort of also tired of the monotony that we're seeing, you know. So I think for me it's no longer a risk to write risky work. Yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> one, one day, one day a, an imp of the perverse will like speak up from your left brain <laughs> and say, um, what, what if we just like didn't do it the way we normally do it, I, I, you know? This last year I've done it, I tried to write, I started this totally realist novel, but I snout a year into the process and I'm like, it starts going off now into good direction. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it, you, know, you need to write what excites, what excites yeah, yeah. you, what gives the thing life. And it's, not, it's, it's just not going to be a realist novel. Besides, mm. I was like, right, let's see, let's give this thing a go. Yeah, yeah. And it, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a risk, you know, you've taken a risk. Yeah, and something else is coming out of it, and that's the good thing. Yeah. There's not going to be a realist novel, do not worry. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I would argue all of my novels are realist novels, that's the funny thing. You know? Well, Bambi, I've seen her. Well, that's what I mean. You've seen Bambi. Yeah, everyone, all of us have seen Bambi. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> but it is, it's like this weird distinction we also make between what counts as surreal and what counts as real, whereby our entire lives are constantly flooded with s s surreal experiences, or 
you know. So I, I also like to dismantle this sort of distinction between yeah, my yeah. counts as realists. So. But I did try and yeah, I did try and write a realist thing. It's just now going completely. I just want to ask <laughs> one more question on that before I, I'm just going to warn that if people have questions, prepare them because I'm going to come out with my microphone in a second. Ask them. But yeah, I, I kind of wanted to loop back to the beginning almost to say, because I was interested with, your, with, with, with the way the, the novel set up, that and kind of my question about autofiction was that, did, did it start as, do you write yourself into the strange? Do you kind of like find something and then kind of almost engage with something that you would perhaps not think is very Isabel Viper and then see where that might lead you? Did, or was there kind of a more straightforward version of Corey Farr and then it became the book oh, that it is? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, 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 no. Good. No. <laughs> no. It's yeah. a, I mean, I don't think of it as that strange. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that sometimes I'm shocked by how, diff other, how, by how other people think my work is. I think the problem is that most of the, ex most of the existing work is so similar that's the problem. I think my work isn't even that, is only that different because what we see on bookshelves to this day, sadly, is still relatively similar. Mm. I think we haven't even like explored proper diversity in, in terms of form mm. and in terms mm. of content, in terms of anything yet. So I don't think of, this is damn strange. I just think of, yeah, yeah this has an energy, this works in terms of um, opening opening something up that is kind of unexpected and exciting to me yeah. and hopefully, yeah. hopefully to the reader.